If you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table here, our gift to you. Uh, You can download a Bible app. Uh, We're going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And just a couple of things as you turn there. The first is this, if if you haven't already picked up on it, heavy text today. Okay, there's a a lot of uh, heaviness in there. But here's what I want us to know. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, uh, you know, he didn't write it uh, the way he wrote it because he doesn't love us. He wrote it because he does love us. I say this to our basketball kids that I coach all the time because sometimes I can, this might be a shock to you, but sometimes I can be a little bit intense on the basketball court and in practice. I'm like chewing kids out all the time. And they're like, I I just remind them all the time, I'm not getting paid to be here. I'm only saying these things because I want you to get better. The Apostle Paul is only saying what he's saying in Ephesians chapter 2 because he loves Jesus and because he loves us. So hold on to that as we, as we go through this. The other thing I'll say is this. Um, I, I feel like the Spirit of God's been doing some unique things as we've been gathering. If you were here last Sunday, uh, man, there was just this like really awesome outpouring of the Spirit of God uh, last Sunday in our, in our teaching time and in our response time. And we had this flood of people that God was just like working on their hearts to receive prayer. And we actually had to call in like reinforcements to come because there were so many people that needed to be prayed for. And it was just like, oh gosh, that is so good. And our hope is that that would continue. And I really believe as we come to this text in particular this morning, that for some of us, this is going to be one of those like like moment of truth, like valley of decision, which way am I going to go kind of text? Because what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to lay out so very clearly uh, the beauty of Jesus. And so as I've been preparing, my prayer has been that the Holy Spirit would speak clearly to us, that our hearts would be good soil to receive the seeds of the gospel. So as we jump into this, I just want to take a moment to pause and pray. I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and, and just prepare yourself to hear. Like, actually ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Like, right now, just ask Him. Maybe posture yourself to receive. Some people like to put their hands out. It doesn't necessarily uh, have any, like, physical significance, but there's just, like, posturing your body to say, I'm ready to receive, Lord Jesus. Jesus, we want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take this word and plant it deep in our hearts. If you have something specific for us this morning, any of us, we invite you to say it. And we want to hear it. We want to receive it. So speak, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then we'll come back and unpack these, okay? So here we go, Ephesians chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. All right, 
Woohoo! Isn't that awesome? Way to go. Like, who peed in the Apostle Paul's cornflakes before he wrote this? Huh? Like, he seems like he's having a bad day. He's got to get some things off his chest. But the reality is this, is the Apostle Paul is, is laying out for us, as you'll see in just a second, the condition of the human heart apart from Jesus. He actually starts, if you notice, he starts at, like this at the beginning of verse 1, as for you, you were. Okay, so he's speaking, the first three verses, he's speaking in past tense. Now keep in mind, the Apostle Paul's writing this letter to a group of churches. So the presumption that Paul is making when he writes this is that he is writing to those who are followers of Jesus because they are a part of the church. Now, I'm not going to make that same presumption. I'm not going to assume that just because you're here Sunday morning, 10 a.m., could be somewhere else, but you chose to be here, that you're actually a follower of Jesus. So while this may be past tense for some of us, it may actually be present tense for some of you. The reality is this, that, that what the Apostle Paul wants us to do is he wants us to just hit pause for a second. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he wants you to try, and this, could be, this might be really hard for some of you. He wants you to try and imagine what your life was like before you knew Jesus. Like, remember it. Think about it. Like, do you remember what it was like to not know Jesus? Because that's what the Apostle Paul is going to lay out for us. The condition of the human heart apart from Christ. So for some of us, we have to think back and we have to go like, okay, what was that like? What did it feel like? What, what was my life like? Where was my hope? What, what brought me joy? What sins were I, was I trapped in? Where was I broken? But for some of you, and again, say this in love, it's a current reality. Now, you, you could hear what the Apostle Paul is going to say and, and get offended, get upset. Um, but you, you know, it's reasonable because he's going to say some really harsh things. But that would be like going to the doctor, the doctor telling you, hey, uh, we did some tests and you have cancer, and then get really mad at your doctor for telling you the truth. That'd be really silly. So, so the ask here is that we would just posture ourselves with humility to hear and receive what Paul is saying, because it may, it may actually be true. And what he's going to do here in these 10 verses, and it's, it's really beautiful, is he's going to start with the brokenness, he's going to start with the sin, he's going to start with like the bad news, but he's going to bring in the gospel at the end. He's going to bring in the reality and the hope of Jesus at the end. And it's kind of like if you've ever, uh, if you've ever gone shopping for a ring, uh, I remember this, like it was a long time ago, but I remember, I remember, uh, you know, engagement ring shopping with Kelly and it was, that was quite an event. I could tell some stories, uh, but I won't because that wouldn't go well for me if I shared some of these stories about my wife from, you know, 23 years ago or whatever it was. But I'll just leave those aside for another day, Chris, for another day. Um, but you go into the, you go into the jeweler and you start looking at rings and, you know, they're, they're trying to make a sale, so they kind of come up to you, and they get all, like, cozy with you, rubbing shoulders and wanting to talk. And then you want to start looking at diamonds. So what they do is, and it's, it's really smart, they pull out this black velvet cloth, pull it across the countertop, and then they bring out the rings. And you look at the diamond ring on the black velvet cloth, and, and what happens? Right? The diamond just pops. Right? On the backdrop of the black velvet, the diamond looks really, really, really good. You're like, I want to buy that diamond. It's a good trick, right? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do here. 
the first three verses, he's pulling out the black velvet, the black cloth. He's going to show you how dark the world really is. He's going to pull back the veil and, and expose the brokenness of humanity. But then what he's going to do is he's going to bring in the diamond, the gospel, the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done, his love, his grace, his mercy, and it's going to pop. So here, here's what I'm telling you is going to happen. It's going to get real ugly for a few minutes before it gets good, okay? So hang, don't, don't leave too early. So here's what the Apostle Paul says. Here's what you, your life is like apart from Christ. It could be past tense. It could be present reality for some of us. That's for you to decide. And he's going to lay out three things for us. Here's the first one he says. As for you, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So, so the Apostle Paul starts his first bit of bad news. The first kind of look at the, vel the black velvet cloth is this. You were dead in your sins. In other words, there is this reality that sin is a part of who we are. We don't like to talk about sin in our culture. We don't like to talk about sin. When you, when you think about the, the idea of sin, like the way we think of spirituality, is, it's sort of like this, like... Like we're in the spiritual doghouse with God, just like we would be with our spouse. And like to get out of the doghouse with our spouse, like usually it's husbands in the doghouse. You never hear of a wife in the doghouse. I'm not sure what that's all about, but that's just the way it goes. You got to do some dishes, right? You got to like vacuum. You got to fold some laundry. And once you've done those things, you're out of the doghouse. You're allowed back in apparently. That's kind of how we view our relationship with God. When we think about spirituality in a, kind of in a West Coast sense, there's sort of like, we throw out these religious platitudes and you see them out there right now a lot, right? Like love is love. And like, I just want to like embrace the divine. And there's all this like religious, spiritual talk that really has no substance or no meaning. And one of the things we've lost is a collective consciousness of what sin actually is. We, we tend to view sin, we don't even use the word anymore, we don't even really have the category in our society anymore, but we tend to determine right and wrong based on how we feel, based on our emotions. And if something feels wrong, then it must be wrong, and if something feels good, then it must be good. But the Bible comes in and says that's not at all what sin is. Sin is the reality that God is holy and you are not. God is good and you are not. And you have broken His law. You have broken His law by not doing the things you were supposed to do. And you have broken His law by doing things you shouldn't have done. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in verse 1. Notice he uses two words. He says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Transgressions means like not measuring up to something. There's a, or sorry, there's a line and you've crossed it. You've gone over the line. That word sin, it means missing the mark, meaning you haven't lived up to something. So, so what the Apostle Paul is saying is there are things that you do, have done, will do that are against the law of God. And there are things that you don't do haven't done and in the future will not do that you should have done. And those are also against the law of God. And the result of your sin is that you're dead. Spiritually incapacitated. Unable in any way, shape, or form to please God. 
Now, some of you would hear this and you're like, well, I don't feel dead. I mean, I look at my life and I've got money, I've got a family, I've got a job, I, I'm a decently, by North American, Western standards, I'm an upright, moral person. People like me, they laugh at my jokes. Right, I'm good. I don't feel dead. The Apostle Paul is saying, do not confuse self-sufficiency with right standing with God. Do not confuse financial self-sufficiency, emotional self-sufficiency, relational self-sufficiency with spiritual self-sufficiency because the two could not be further apart. I was on a, on a, a Zoom call with a, a friend, uh, a new friend lives in uh, the United States, and we were just talking about uh, what it's like to do ministry in the West, like in the North American, in particular the North American context. And here's what he said. He said it is so hard to do uh, like gospel work, like to, to make disciples in the West. And he said, because there's like this Christian echo in our culture where we've kind of heard about Jesus, like there's this vestige of of Christian morality in our society, but we've kind of long forgotten it and moved past it. But then there's also the reality of our wealth and our affluence and our our, just our well-being that puts us in a status that makes it very, very hard for us to hear that we need to be saved from something because we look at our lives and we don't actually think we need to be saved from anything. He said, if you go to other parts of the world, there are lots of people coming to faith in Jesus because they have need. Interestingly enough, if you were to hang out with Gordo and Julia, for those who don't know who Gordo and Julia are, they, they run uh, like a, a parachurch kind of street ministry out of our church called Broken Ministries where they feed homeless people. They work with folks who are just in like high needs, tons of openness to the gospel. Hang out in the white picket fence, kind of West Shore, you know, upper middle class, socioeconomic kind of world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, not interested, don't need it, don't want it. I'm good. Well, the Apostle Paul says, no, you're not. He says, no, you are not. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. Now it gets worse. Okay? And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Look at what he says next in verse 2. So you're dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. So the Apostle Paul starts by saying you're dead in your sins. Second thing he says in the verse 2 in the first half of verse 3, he says, not only are you dead in your sins, you're also enslaved. Right? You're enslaved. He uses that word follow, meaning like you're attached to something. And then he gives us three things that we're enslaved to, three things that we're attached to. Look at the first one. He said, you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2, when you used to live... Uh, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. The first thing that we are enslaved to is the world. When he talks about the world, he's, he's not talking about the globe, like the earth, the dirt. He's talking about the culture. He's saying there is, there is this reality that we have to recognize that we live, yes, we live in the world, but there's kind of like two worlds. There's the kingdom of heaven, and then there's the kingdom of the earth. There's the kingdom of heaven where Jesus has rule and reign. And then there's the kingdom of earth, which we'll talk about this in just a second, where Satan rules and reigns. 
And the two have nothing in common with one another. He's saying, apart from Christ, you are not in the kingdom of heaven because you are dead in your sins. Apart from Christ, you are in the kingdom of the world. And what happens when you live in the kingdom of the world is you start to become influenced by the kingdom of the world. Uh, this is what like, sociologists call synch syncretization, where you start to take the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of, or the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world, you start to bring them together. You actually see this in the church now. Like right now, this, this very moment that we're living in, we're, we're seeing this slow erosion of biblical values, not in the culture. I expect that in the culture, but I'm seeing it in the church. Over the last few weeks, and, and I don't want to get political, but these are things we have to acknowledge. We, we see Christians who are disappointed that there is a movement in the United States. And again, I'm not trying to get political, but that is trying to save the lives of the unborn. I mean, just think about that. The Bible is pro-life. The church should be pro-life. Christians should be pro-life. But we're allowing the kingdom of the world to influence, syncretize to our faith, and start to determine our values. So instead of reading from the scriptures and allowing the scriptures to determine what we believe, we start reading from the teleprompter of culture and allowing it to determine what we believe. You start to talk about marriage, gender ideology. I mean, I've got so many friends who are leading in churches who do not think that marriage is biblically between one man and one woman for one life. I have so many friends who are leading in churches who do not think that the Bible teaches plainly and clearly that God made them male and female. And they are embracing the ideologies of the world and they are allowing them to influence how they interpret the Bible. And so instead of allowing the Bible to interpret the culture, they're allowing the culture to interpret the Bible. And the result is they look more like the world than they do like Jesus. And I know that's not going to sell well here. Some of you are deeply offended right now. I don't know what to tell you. The Apostle Paul says... Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to the world. We're enslaved to the world. We have to, we have to not... Jesus literally prayed, not that, he, not that we'd be taken from the world, but that we'd be in the world, but not overcome by it. Separate from, holy, distinct, within, calling out, beacons of light, calling out His goodness and grace and His glory, pointing to Him. And you're not going to do that if you look the same, think the same, believe the same, act the same, talk the same. Some of us are enslaved to the world. That's not all we're enslaved to. We're enslaved to the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What's the Apostle Paul talking about here? He's talking about Satan. You have the kingdom of, uh, of the world who rules in the kingdom of the world. Satan rules in the kingdom of the world. This is what he's saying, okay? Like, just think about this. Like, I, gosh, you're like, I'm glad I don't got this guy's job today, right? I'm glad I do what I do, nine to five, not this poor sucker who's got to stand up there. Because what the Apostle Paul is saying is you are enslaved to Satan. Enslaved to Satan. Something like, I don't believe in Satan, that's archaic. 
this is 2020 whatever, we've got cell phones and drive-through windows and we're smart. We can fry up tofu and you know put it on salads and kale shakes and like we're just we're good. We got this all figured out. We're we're is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, right? Like we think we know more than everyone else who's ever lived, but we're morons, right? Like we have no idea what we're doing. Not a, not a clue, not a clue. We're hopeless. C.S. Lewis said. The, the, there's two great errors you can make when it comes to Satan and demons. The one is to make too much of them. The other is to make too little. The Apostle Paul is going to say in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities. If you don't think Satan is having a field day in our culture right now, like, you're not paying attention. He's all about lies. He's all about deception. He's all about killing, stealing, and destroying. And that's exactly what's happening. It's been happening for a long time. It's going to continue to happen. I'm not a doomsdayer in saying that we are in like the worst time that has ever lived. All I'm saying is this, is that Satan has dominion and authority over the world. And if you are not in Christ, then you are enslaved to the world and you are enslaved to Satan. And then he's going to go on and say this. It's going to get better. Don't worry. Remember, good news. Diamond's coming out, folks. Diamond's coming out. Hang with me. Hang with me. Here's what he said. You, you know, you're... Uh, in which you used to live, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. So we're enslaved to the world, we're enslaved to the devil, we're enslaved to our own flesh. Now what Paul is not talking about here is skin and bones. He's talking about, when he uses that word flesh, he's talking about our carnal desires, that deep within us we have these desires. And here's what he's saying. Your desires are not turned towards God, but they are turned away from Him. And you give in to those desires all the time. See, if the Apostle Paul, if all he said was you're enslaved to the, the world, then all we would have to do is retreat from the world, and then we'd be okay. If all we were enslaved to was Satan, then all we would have to do is what Jesus did in, in the desert when he was tempted by Satan, which fast, pray, quote scripture, Satan would flee, we'd be good. But the Apostle Paul is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. It's far, it's far worse than you could even possibly imagine because even your desires apart from Christ are evil. They're evil. So if you were to, to and, and for some of us, this is like our functional dream, right? We want to move out to like the middle of nowhere, start like a Christian compound, move there with all of our friends, start a homeschooling co-op, sew our own dresses, churn our own butter, and just like live in this like beautiful community where it's just us and Jesus and we're living off the land and it's beautiful. Here's what the Apostle Paul's saying. That would suck. For a whole bunch of reasons. Namely, though, because you're there. <laughs> I'm not joking. Listen, some of us think, and I'm not, this is not a comment on what you should do with your kids' education. Some of you think that if you homeschool your kids, you can protect them from the evils of the school system. That's true. But you can't protect them from the evils of you. You're still there. The only difference between you and the school system is you're comfortable with the carnal desires of your flesh. That's the only difference. You're used to your sin, so you kind of like it. That's what Paul's saying. And the fact, listen to me, 
in case you're like, yeah, not guilty yet, Chris, you haven't nailed me. The fact that you think if you could escape from the world, you would be safe from evil is evidence of your own brokenness. Because you can't see your own sin. Right? Right? You can see everyone else's, but you can't see your own. Gosh. Gets worse one more time. Last time, I promise. Second half of verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul's saying, because of all of that evil. And listen, if, if you don't think that evil exists, again, like, are you even paying attention? The number one question that worldviews, political ideologies, uh, religions, sociological kind of concepts are trying to answer is what is wrong with the world, right? And for some, it's like, well, it's that political leader, or it's that political leader, or it's those people, or it's that economic policy. And to all of which I'd say, probably you're right. The Christian answer, though, to what is wrong with the world is sin. G.K. Chesterton, who was a Christian thinker, writer, he, he wrote a letter to the, there was a letter to the editor in, in the newspaper uh, in the town he lived in. And the question was, what do you think is wrong with the world? And here's what Chesterton wrote in, right? This like really profound thinker. He's written thousands and thousands and thousands of pages on some of the most complex theological concepts to ever have been thought of. And here's what he wrote. I am, period. The world is broken What is the problem? According to Paul, according to Jesus, according to the scriptures, sin is. And here's what Paul says is the result of all that brokenness. We were by nature. In other words, you can't blame your brokenness or your sin on your parents. You can't blame your sin or your brokenness on where you were born or when you were born. Because the Apostle Paul saying it's your nature. It's like how it's, 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 it's more than even just your genetics. It's like your spiritual essence was born into brokenness. The Apostle Paul will lay this out in the book of Romans. Like, like we are all condemned guilty in light of the brokenness of Adam. Our first father, Genesis chapter 3, when he sinned, we were all implicated in his sin. You're born into sin. There's a lot of new babies around here. You can tell who the moms are that had the new babies because they kind of got that look like they went to like a frat party on Saturday night, right? There's like, right? And before you have a baby, what do you think? You're like, I can't wait to have a baby. It's going to be awesome. They're so cute. They're perfect. No, 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 no. They're not perfect. First of all, they're born into sin. Second of all, like you can tell they're sinners because all they do is like cry and need you and whine and complain about stuff all the time and you don't get to sleep. The Apostle Paul is saying that's the reality of the human condition. We are all broken. And then he goes on to say we are by nature objects of wrath. In other words, the judgment of God is upon us because of our sin. And again, hell is one of these ideas that that we don't love to talk about. But it's in the scriptures. It's clear. Apart from Jesus, 
apart from his death on the cross, which we'll talk about in just a couple of minutes, his death on the cross in our place for our sins, we are still in ours. See, the question when it comes to sin and brokenness is who's going to take responsibility for it? Are you going to take responsibility for your own sin or are you going to let Jesus take responsibility for your sin? And if you want to take responsibility for your own sin, then you're going to have to stand in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, I really appreciate all you did for me on the cross. I really appreciate your offer of grace and mercy, but I don't want it. So I'm willing to take the punishment for my own sin. John Stott described the wrath of God like this. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility towards evil. None of us would think that that's a bad thing, right? That God is personally righteous and constantly hostile towards evil. I mean, I think I would want a God like that. When I think of evil things in the world, I would want a God who's against those things. It's his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. Again, all things I would want. Good qualities in a God. The problem comes when I have to reconcile the reality that I'm also evil. It's fine when God's ticked off at everyone else's evil. It's not as nice when it's mine. That's where the rub is, right? I understand. I didn't wake up this morning. I woke up this morning excited about the next part. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't wake up excited to talk about this. I understand the tension. I understand the pain. I understand the hard, the hard realities that Paul is laying out. But here's what I'd ask you to do. Just take a moment and just reflect on this. Don't, don't push past it. Don't just ignore, don't just dismiss, don't deflect. But feel it for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you once were, according to the Apostle Paul. Try and remember that. Remember that feeling. Friends, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I love you so much. But you have cancer. You have cancer. And it wouldn't be loving for me or for the Apostle Paul or for Jesus to not tell you that. In fact, it would be unloving for me not to tell you, wouldn't it? I'm not mad at you. Paul's not mad at you. I don't hate you. Paul doesn't hate you. I love you. Jesus loves you. Paul loves you. They want you to hear the truth so that you can respond to the truth. If you don't know you're sick, you don't know you need to get help. Okay, that's the black velvet. Okay? So now I'm going to say, hey, you're looking at some diamonds. Let me pull it out for you. Verse 4. 
Here's what the Apostle Paul says. But. Whew. <laughs> okay. In other words, we're not done yet. Thank goodness. Now, now, here's what I want you to notice, okay? So in the first three verses, I didn't point this out earlier, but in the first three verses, I believe there's seven personal pronouns. In other words, there's seven times in three verses where the Apostle Paul says, you, you were, you are, you've done, this is your issue, you, 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 you. From this point forward, he still does use some personal pronouns, but you're going to notice like the, the, the weight shifts completely from you completely onto God. It's actually remarkable and it's beautiful. So notice what he says here. But because of who? His great what? Love for us. God, who is rich in mercy. Okay, so, so here's what he's saying. He's like, this is what you were apart from Christ. But that's not where the story ends. God is loving. God is gracious. God is kind. He looked at you in your state. He looked at you and your, in your brokenness. And he did not leave you there. Now, he's going to say a whole bunch of things. Just like it got really bad, it's going to start getting really good. So look at what he says first. Now, if you go back to Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 to 23, I believe, it is like a giant, like, exposition on like the apostle Paul is just like praying he's worshiping he's talking about like the, like the he, like how big the love of Jesus is he's giving us this big theological vision for the goodness of Jesus it's just pouring out of his heart pouring out of his mouth pouring out of his soul but it's almost like too lofty for us to really understand in chapter 2, here from verses 4 to the end of, of verse 10, what he's going to do is he's going to take these lofty ideas of who Jesus is and he's going to make them very personal. Because look at what he says. Verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, look at what he says, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. In other words, Jesus looks down at us in our state, in our brokenness, in our deadness, in our trespasses and sins, in our enslavement to Satan, the world, in our flesh, into the reality that the wrath of God is upon us. He looks down at us in that state and he doesn't leave us there. He comes to us. He moves towards us. And what does he do? He makes us alive. He resuscitates us. He brings us back from the dead. Again, in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul lays out this beautiful picture of the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what he's doing in chapter 2. He's saying, this is what it looks like. You, like Jesus, were dead. And just as Jesus rose, I am raising you. Just as Jesus went to the cross and paid for your sin, when you received Jesus, your sin was paid for. Your old self was dead. And I am making you new. I am making you alive yet again. Uh, the picture that is being painted for us is out of like Genesis chapter 2 where God is creating Adam and Eve and he gets down on his knees. He fashions them out of the dirt and he breathes his very breath into their nostrils. And they come alive. In other words, I'm not leaving you dead. I'm actually making you alive. You're not left 
wondering. You're not left in your sin. You're not left in your brokenness. He's not like looking at you all disappointed, all frustrated, all angry, saying, man, I wish they could figure out their stuff. No, no, no. He enters into the mess and the brokenness and he makes you alive. It's beautiful. He's going to go on to say this. Verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So not only has God made us alive just as Jesus was made alive, but He raises us up in the same way that Jesus was raised up, ascended up into heaven. So, so Jesus comes up from the grave. He's resurrected to new life. He will, he's ascended up into heaven. And the Apostle Paul saying that this is exactly... This is exactly what God has done with us. Not only are we no longer dead in our transgressions and sins because we have been made alive, but we are also now no longer enslaved to our sin, no longer enslaved to Satan, no longer enslaved to the flesh and to the world because we have been raised up, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Amen? So you're no longer a sinner caught in your sin, but you are now, listen to me, church, you are now a saint seated at the right hand of God with Christ. Do you believe that? See, some of you don't believe that. Some of you are that, but you live as though you're not that. Some of you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but you still live as if you are a sinner enslaved to your sin. You still allow brokenness to define your life. You still allow addiction to define your life. You still allow your past to define your present. And what Jesus has done for us, what the Apostle Paul is laying out for us, is that is not who we are anymore. Those things are dead. When Jesus went to the cross, He took all your sin and it was nailed there. He killed it. Your old self is gone. A new person has been raised to life. But yet, we live powerless lives, still enslaved to our sin. Because we don't believe that what Jesus has done is sufficient to save us. We feel like we have to do something to save ourselves. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, you have been seated you have been seated with him in the heavenly realms. Just think about that for a second. Think about what it must be like to be sitting in heaven next to Jesus. Uh, just think about it in light of the, the reality of the moment you're sitting in, right? For some of us, life sucks. The wheels are coming off the bus. It's not good. We're caught in a trap of sin. Our brokenness seems real. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to imagine you're sitting next to Jesus in the heavenly realms. Now, here's an interesting question. Like, Why? How is that helpful? Why, why is this where God has brought us? Well, look at what verse 7 says. Okay, because this is, this is good. 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So just think about this with me for a second. Think about your worst day. Okay, we have bad days. <laughs> Come on now. Right, you got bad days where you kind of get in your head. Right? You start believing lies. Satan gets a foothold. He starts whispering things in your, li- in your ear that you know aren't true, but like, you start to doubt the goodness of God. You start to think to yourself, I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. And all these things just start like, run- like it just runs through your mind. Right? It's very real. You feel it. Now, here's what I want you to imagine with me, okay? Because this is the picture the Apostle Paul is trying to paint for us. We're no longer enslaved, right? We're, not, we're now seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Why? Because he wants to show us the incomparable riches of his grace. So imagine your worst day. You're sitting next to Jesus. And all, like, just try and think about this. You're sitting next to Jesus, and all you can think about is your own brokenness and your own sin. Like That in and of itself is a little bit kind of weird and sadistic and self-centered. But then, but then here's what Jesus does. He's like, hey, Chris. Hey, Jesus. I want to show you something. Like what? I want to show you the incomparable riches of my grace that I express to you. And here I am wallowing in my sin, wallowing in my brokenness, and Jesus reaches out next to me and he, I I don't know what's in his hand, I don't know what this would look like, but he shows me his grace. What do we see in that moment? I don't know. But here's what I do know, friends. That on those hands by which he is showing us the incomparable riches of his grace that he expressed to us in his kindness are nail piercings. Where he says to us, you know the thing that you're crucifying yourself for right now? You know the thing you're beating yourself up for right now? I was crucified for it. I was beaten for it. I died for it. You can stop beating yourself up. You can stop crucifying yourself. You can stop living in a state of unforgiveness and unlove and brokenness because that is not who you are anymore. It's who you were. Amen? Man, that's good. So good. Verse 8. I'm just about done. Got real bad. It's got to get real good, right? We've got to get a couple more good ones in here. Verse 8, here's what Paul says. Kind of summarizes all this for us. For it is by grace... Grace meaning the unearned, unfavor, uh, sorry, the unearned, unmerited favor of God. In other words, there's nothing you have done because you were dead. This isn't like religious performance. This isn't like try harderism. This isn't like do the right thingism. This is like God has given it to us because He is good, not because you are good. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying that even the gift of faith is not something that you and I muster up. The faith that we have to believe these truths is actually a gift that is given by God. So the 
Apostle Paul is trying to make like abundantly clear. And this, this doesn't sell well in the west shore of Victoria, but it really should. You don't have what it takes. You don't have it all together. You don't have what you need to make yourself right with God. You're not just in the doghouse. You needed everything that God could possibly give you, even the faith to believe the words that I'm speaking right now was given to you by God. Why? Look at what he says, verse 9, not by work so that no one can boast. Because Paul knows that if it was about our faith, we would still take credit for it. And what he's trying to make abundantly clear is this. You got to hear this. I don't care how long you've been coming to church gatherings. I don't care if you know Jesus or not. Here's what you need to hear. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all desperately need Jesus. We need him. And the invitation of the Apostle Paul is to receive him. To recognize verses 1 to 3, I have great need. But Jesus comes in and says, I will meet the need. And I'll even give you the faith to believe that I've met the need. And the question for us is, what are we going to do with that? Invite the band to come up as we close. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with your need? Where are you going to take it? Who's, who's got what is required in order to satisfy the need. Are you going to come to Jesus? Some of you this morning, I said at the beginning of this, for some of us, this is like a moment of decision. In a second, we're going to respond. Adam will kind of lead us through that response time. But there'll be people in the back that, that, that want to pray with you and want to process with you what the Spirit of God is doing. For some of you, it's like, I need to go back there. I just need to tell somebody. I need to respond right now. But there's this lingering question that the Spirit of God is wanting us to wrestle with, which is, what will we do with this? And then I will close where Paul closes here in verse 10. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. First three verses, we're dead. We can do nothing. We're lying on the floor, hopeless, helpless, desperate need. But God comes in, saves, rescues, and redeems. And look at, Paul says, where's handiwork? Where's handiwork? What's, what's he saying? He's saying he's making you into this new person, right? It's not like you've arrived. It's not like once you, you know, make this decision to follow Jesus, like all of a sudden you arrive. It's like he's, he's, 
He's making you into this new person. He's fashioning you, just like Genesis 1 and 2 fashions Adam and Eve. He's fashioning you into this new person. To do what? To live a new life. To do good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. There's this trajectory to the work of God. He doesn't just leave you dead. He raises you up. And then he doesn't just leave you there. He makes you into this new creature, this new creation. His handiwork to go out and do good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we have great need. And I would just ask that right now, Jesus, you would show us that need. Reveal to us where we need you. Reveal to us our insufficiencies, our inadequacies, our brokenness. Jesus, may we just hear your whisper right now. Calling us. Beckoning us to come. Friends, if you can hear that whisper, don't relent. That is the Holy Spirit giving you the gift of faith. And I, I believe he's giving some of us that gift right now. And it's not like a... It's not just for those who have never believed before. Some of us need the gift of faith. We've been following Jesus for a long time, and we we need the gift of faith again. There's, There's a lot of dead things that need to be made alive. There's a lot of enslaved things that need to be raised up and seated in the heavenlies. Do your work among us, we pray, Lord Jesus. And all God's children said,